Well, good morning, everybody. Boy, is it great to be with you. Uh, my name is Alex Grom, and I'm the campus pastor over at our Torrance location, and I am so, so glad that we're connected now live with our Torrance campus. Really great people over there. If you haven't been to Torrance, you should be to Torrance. But, hey, great to see everybody at Manhattan Beach, too. You're not second fiddle. I'm so glad that we're one church in at least two locations, but that's not, that's not it. I'm also glad that everybody's connecting with us online. If you're uh, online watching this message, maybe that's Sunday, maybe it's during the week. I'm just so, so glad that you made church part of your week. Uh, Hey, we're going to continue today uh, the message series that we've been calling Positive Influence. The goal of this series has been to look into the life of Jesus and his ministry to find ways that we can better use the power, the influence that each one of us has. Uh, If you were here in week one, you heard Jason, Pastor Jason, tell us, teach us that we all have influence and you don't have to be an official CEO or manager or boss to have influence. We all have people that our lives impact their lives. And so we can learn through this series. For some of you, it will literally be, how in my job can I be a better leader? For others of you, it will be, hey, in my family, in my friendship group, in my community, how can I better use my influence to bring a positive effect on the people in my life? So we're going through five different uh, traits that Jesus displays that we can add to ourselves, that we can emulate from him that will help us have a more positive influence. Let me just review where we've been so far. The first week, we started talking very generally about character that becoming people of good character, especially humility and being willing to serve others is a massive step forward in how we can use our influence for good in the world around us. Then last week, we went to this characteristic, resolve. How do we become people of resilience? Uh, The the fact is that we're going to go through hard times, but how can we be people who are, with God's help, able to continue through those things for the benefit of ourselves and others around us? Well, today, again, week three, we're going to add uh, this new uh, attribute, which is compassionate candor. Now, we actually squished two in one, made one an adjective so we could do two in one week. But the combination of compassion and candor is what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, candor, uh, we chose it on purpose so we could define it. And it really means this. It means truth-telling, authenticity, or sincerity. How do we accurately speak about our lives in the world in a truthful way, in an authentic, vulnerable way? Uh, so the, it's not just about truth-telling, though. That's why we added the compassionate side of it, because it really is this combo. How do we become people who are able to speak truth into situations, but also do that with care, with love behind it, so that the people we're influencing are able to experience that in a positive way? Our culture has a really difficult time with that combination of truth and compassion and care. Uh, in fact, usually in our world, we because we're not practiced at it, we go in one direction, one extreme or the other. Some of us are very good at compassion, where we feel like, oh, I'm a really caring person, and so therefore, I actually don't want to use my truth-telling voice very much. When you see something that's needs to be changed in the world or something that can be improved or something shifted, you usually don't speak up. You're, you're on, on the avoiding edge of that extreme. And sometimes you feel that about yourself. Boy, I wish I could say more things, use my voice more uh, to advocate for myself and for others. So that might be the side you're on. The other side is that you are very good at truth-telling, but it's in a harsh, judgmental, critical way that you will tell people what's on your mind and it is often hurtful or inappropriate or so jagged that it doesn't have a positive influence on someone. I remember 
remember experiencing things like that where in our world, the, the world, the culture around us doesn't get this balance right and those especially, those judgmental harsh words are really hard to experience. Uh, I was thinking about it this week of my son. He's a senior in high school. I remember when I was a senior in high school and had to do college applications. I applied to many colleges and some I got into, but do you remember when you don't get into colleges, how that feels? They send you that little letter, you know, like the thin letter, not the big packet that you were hoping for. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember those rejection letters saying things like, you're not good enough try again, go somewhere else, buddy, or whatever. I mean, I'm sure they didn't say it like that, but that's how it felt, didn't it? Actually, for those of you who are students and seniors, I'm interested to hear if they've got any more compassion in those horrible letters nowadays. Um, sometimes we, we feel this imbalance when it comes to our workplaces. A lot of us feel that our workplace is a place more of candor, more of truth-telling, but short on compassion, light on compassion. That usually comes, you know, you're in a meeting with your manager and they are telling you to improve your work, be more efficient, be more committed to the company, to the organization, and it is deflating. It breaks you down. You come out of one of those meetings feeling like you just got beat up. And you also suspect that the manager felt like it went pretty well. And so there's a disconnect between how you experience truth-telling in that place. But by the way, it's, we can't just blame it on managers, can't just blame it on bosses. This is a problem culturally that each one of us has. It's often internal, that our hearts are trending toward the bitter, the judgmental, the critic that each of us have. We have become practiced as a culture, as a people, in being better pundits, better fault finders, better nitpickers in the world around us. We have this challenge where we can't seem to find a finesse, a right balance between these two things. Now, thank goodness we have Jesus as an example. He, through his spirit, wants to empower us, if you're a follower of God, to begin taking these steps to not just stay silent and avoid, but instead to speak about yourself and your experience and the world in truth-telling ways. And he wants to empower us to partner that with true care. Not just compassion that would avoid an issue, but compassion that would lead us to really bringing change in the places that we're able. In fact, with Jesus' example, we're going to learn this lesson today that following his example, we can become people who partner truth with authentic connection. We can be people of truth that actually make a relational impact on the people around us. We're going to look at a passage of scripture from the book of Luke. Here's where you can find it. It's in the book of Luke chapter 13, 10 through 17. This is just one story, but we're going to see Jesus interact with two different people in this story and use the same positive influence skills to interact with them uh, in the same situation in different moments. It, it really is a great example of how Jesus used this skill of compassionate candor. Uh, what we're going to find is in the story we're going to read, Jesus is at a place in his life where he has been active in ministry. He's traveling around teaching people. Sometimes that means out in public places that crowds would come to hear his spiritual teaching about God's kingdom, about God's love and forgiveness. Other times he would teach in people's homes. People he knew would invite him to their house and people would come to their house to listen. 
But primarily where he was teaching was in Jewish synagogues. We might forget this, but Jesus himself was a Jewish man. And so on the Sabbath day for the Jewish uh, calendar, he would go week by week to attend a synagogue. And synagogues are in some ways similar to what we have here at church. And in fact, here's a picture. My wife and I were able to travel to Israel uh, earlier this year. And here is a picture of uh, a recreation of a synagogue. This one is in Nazareth. This is not uh, where the synagogue is that from our story today, but this is an example of what ancient synagogues looked like, where you can see there still is, very much like our church, a place for a congregation to sit. They have these benches along the outside. And then here is a little podium where they would place the scrolls of the Old Testament, God's word, and then they would read and someone would lead them through uh, some thinking about that passage. Now, The reason why I show you this is because there are similarities. One difference, though, in this is that there was often a synagogue leader who would do some teaching sometimes, but also, if you were a traveling rabbi, if you were another religious leader, they might invite you to speak at their church, at their synagogue. And so that's what's happening with Jesus in our story, that he wasn't the pastor of this church, but he was a traveling speaker who attended the synagogue, and the synagogue leader invited him to share. So let's see what happens to him on this Sabbath morning as he's teaching. It says this, One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. Now, what's interesting about this passage, first of all, it's a terrible thing this woman is going through, but I really want you to see that it says that Jesus saw this woman. Now, you saw from the picture that I showed, those ancient synagogues were not big places. They were small local community branches where they could worship. So the truth is, everyone saw this woman. She was probably a member of the community that everyone knew had this challenge of something going on with her back where she was bent double. The reason why Luke, the author of this passage, is being so specific about it is what he is saying is, Jesus really saw this woman. It wasn't like from a distance. The farthest she could have been away for us would be three, four rows back from here. So it was very obvious that people knew she was there. But Luke is saying, yes, but Jesus really saw her. Jesus really saw that she was going through a challenge. Now, this is such an interesting thing because what he's, what he's doing here is experiencing candor. He is saying, in his mind even, that woman is going through a challenge. Even that moment of recognition is something that might be culturally challenging for us. We are taught in our Western culture at a very young age, if there is a person among us who has a disability or is going through a health crisis, and and when a little kid looks at them, what do parents say to that kid? You might have said this to your own kids. We say, hey, don't stare. Don't stare. That's rude. We say that, right? That is well-intentioned because you're right. It's rude. We don't want to be people who are rude. We don't, if someone's going through a physical challenge, want to stare at them. But That early lesson that we learn as kids in our culture sticks with us until we're adults. Now that we're adults, we still problematically, when we see people who are going through physical challenges, we have taught ourselves to pretend like we're oblivious, 
to pretend like we don't notice. Now, again, I think it's well-intentioned. We don't want to compound that. But Jesus was able to do something different. He was able to see this woman who was going through something that everyone else knew she was going through, but he somehow really saw her. I have friends uh, who just talked to me this week. I was talking to them who have disabilities or are going through health challenges, and they say that thing that we learn as children actually really leads to big isolation for people who are, who are dealing with those challenges in life right now. They, they feel invisible. Because instead of actually caring sometimes or showing compassion, we bounce over it. And we say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that you're going through this. When of course we did. Jesus wants us to take that step. Now I'm not saying just with people who have a disability. I'm saying we should see that everywhere. In fact, Jesus takes his impression, his perception of this woman to a level that's very important. Because remember, he doesn't just see that she has a physical problem. Somehow he's able to discern this. Jesus saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. This is very kooky stuff. We don't talk about this much here at church, but somehow Jesus knew that something spiritually was happening in this woman's body. He had that ability to discern us. We actually don't know what he means. Luke, the author, was very comfortable just giving us this amount of information. But remember, we learned that she was suffering from this problem for 18 years. So we don't know if Jesus meant that She had been involved with something sinful or evil 18 years ago that had caused this problem and she was suffering with it for that long. Or we don't know if he means that an actual active spiritual presence was afflicting her in a way that affected her physical body. We also don't know if Luke just was speaking metaphorically and personifying the great brokenness of the world that had caused this issue. We don't know those things, but what we do know is that Jesus saw something deeper than the surface. Our first lesson has to be that we would do the same. That when we see people, they don't just have to be people going through disability. They can be anyone in our lives. Are we perceptive of what the challenges are that they're facing? And are we willing to admit that we understand that they would need some assistance or compassion inside of those things? Honestly, some of you need to be better at expressing those ourselves. You might be the kind of person, sometimes I'm like this, where I'm like, I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to tell people what I'm actually going through. Or if you've ever talked to your friends, the family that loves you, they will say, we want you to talk to us. We want you to use candor about expressing vulnerably who you really are. So that leads us to our first of our two main points today. Here it is. You need to let God direct you into important truth-telling. I'm not just saying you just need to start spouting what's ever on your mind. I'm saying let God direct you into being more open and vulnerable about what's really happening and being more open and vulnerable with the people that you see around you in your life. Um, that could be your coworkers. How many of your coworkers are going through an, ex- an extensive time of stress and busyness and you have a little margin in your job that you could offer them healing. You could offer them a little bit of assistance because you really see what they're going through. We are people, you might not be able to recognize demonic oppression, but you, in fact, I don't want you to do that of like, oh, you're busy in your job, demons. That's not, that's not how we want to work out as people. But you could say, hey, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know you're struggling with this. Let me help. Uh, in fact, the thing that Jesus does first that should blow our cultural mind 
He recognizes this woman who's bent double for 18 years is suffering, and here's what he does. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. He's going to talk to her about it. When's the last time you talked to a friend going through something and said, hey, can you, can you tell me, what's your experience been like? How are you lately with this challenge that I know you're having? Those are vulnerable, challenging conversations, but Jesus did it. Jesus was willing to begin the process of actually connecting with someone in need. That was how he showed his candor. Let me tell you a story. A a few weeks ago, I was at uh, a Target in Torrance. I don't know if you go down this way, but there's a Target on Sepulveda. Uh, Is that how you say it? Sepulveda? Yeah. When we moved here, we said Sepulveda, which says stupid idiots. But we weren't. Sepulveda. We're on Sepulveda. There's the Target there. And it's the one that's right next to a Ralph's. Can you imagine that one? It's like Target and Ralph's right next to each other. Um, I was one day, a couple weeks ago, stopped by because I needed to get some groceries at Ralph's. So I parked my car. I'm walking into Ralph's. And in my peripheral vision, I caught sight of a woman who was stressed out. And she happened to be, uh, I don't know what her plan was for the day, but she needed to go both to Target and to Ralph's. Have you ever been in that situation where you're like, oh, they're so close, I'll go to both. So she had started at Target, and I don't know what happened to her Target, but this woman was already at her wit's end. She had a toddler in her Target cart, her cart was full of random stuff, and she was huffing and puffing and snarling, and her kid was crying, and it, was, it just seemed like a miserable situation. She was so stressed that I noticed from about 200 feet away. That's how stressed this woman was. She was beaming with stress. It wasn't just me. There was probably 10 or 12 people also around in this parking lot just going about a regular business, and all of us could tell that she was flipping out and that it was about to get way worse because, like I said, she was pushing a target cart. And she was trying to take that target cart between Target and Ralph's. Now, if you've ever been outside in the normal world, you know one of the scariest things that exists out there is that yellow line. We don't know what that thing does, but it says, don't take your carts past this line. Something bad's going to happen. And we were, all of us around, as I'm walking to Ralph's, saw her approaching that line where it says, do not take your target carts, we'll get you. She hit that line. And if you've ever wondered if they work, they work because the magnets ripped into place, stopped her cart dead in its tracks, the wheels were locked up, and she exploded. And I literally mean her stress went through the roof. She flipped out even more than I expected. She's still trying to push the cart, suffers falling out. Her toddler's like, whoa, flipping. And it was, it was incredibly dramatic. I don't know if you're a person that's drawn to drama or not, but it was like, the kind of situation was like, do do I film this? Do I film this and put it on the internet? No, you do not film this and put it on the internet. Then something even scarier happened. She She was flipping out, and then immediately she ran away. She ran away from her toddler. And now it turned out she was running to the nearest cart corral to get a Ralph's cart. So she wasn't abandoning this poor toddler. She was trying in her stress to do her best. Now, let me back up a second and and remind you, there were probably 10 or 12 other citizens standing around, 100 feet in like a circle. We were all engaged with the drama that was happening. And I have got to tell you, it was not a demon, but we don't even need demons. They, They have a useless job because there is a cultural force that kept us back. 
We literally, this whole time, she's running away from her toddler, and all of us 12 people, we're looking at each other, like, should we do something? Should something happen? Do we dare? And we're like moving in and then being like, uh, but she's in her own person, I shouldn't get involved. Do you know that barrier that I'm talking about? But like, should I step in? No, it's none of my thing. Where's the security person? Aren't there police in this town? What's happened? And, and you, you cannot go past that invisible line. I wish it had been a yellow line. At least I would have known that it's someone else's fault. It was my fault. Because I could not, we could not bring ourselves to be of any help to this poor woman with her little kid. And now good news, she got back with the Ralph's cart, she transferred everything over and went about her day. No thanks to us, because we literally gawked at her and didn't know what to do. We have to learn the lesson. I need to learn the lesson that comes from Jesus, that observing, truth-telling, Being a person of candor and saying, oh, she had it pretty bad, that is not enough. We need to do this second step. Here it is. We have to let truth flow directly into compassionate action. We must be doers of God's word. We must be doers in action of showing people compassion. Honestly, what's the worst that could happen? She could say, I'm so stressed out, I don't want you anywhere near me. No problem. Then you back off. But I didn't even give her a chance to say that. She could have said, this is just what I need to thank you so much for standing by my toddler, at least. I didn't even give her the chance because I didn't act. Jesus acts. Remember, he's with that woman. She's bent double, suffering for 18 years. He calls her over, and then he shows her compassionate action, not just feeling action. Here's what he says to her. Only Jesus could say it. He says, dear woman, you're healed of your sickness. He frees her in this life. He frees her from that malady she was experiencing. Praise the Lord. I can't even believe he was willing to do that. Uh, May he heal all of us. And whether that's in this life, he will heal you in his kingdom uh, if you would follow him and be with him. But this woman gets to experience it right then. Um, It is a beautiful thing. Now, I, I don't know if any of you are gifted by the Spirit to be healers. That's not something that God has used in my life in this literal way. But that does not excuse us from bringing God's healing into people's lives anyway. You have family members that are suffering. And they don't need magical healing from you, but they do need you to bring grace, gentleness, thoughtfulness, patience, and willingness to hear them into their lives. And they would feel just as healed um, by your presence in their lives. Jesus then takes it one last step further. He does this. Then Jesus touched her, another translation says, touched her back where she was hurting the most, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. I love that. That last sentence is just Luke, the author. He couldn't believe it. How she praised God. I love hearing his voice come through in this beautiful passage. Jesus touches this woman's back. He, I, I need you to understand, for a traveling religious teacher, he did not know this woman. We have no indication that they knew each other personally. For him to stretch out his hands and physically touch this person who was suffering was breaking a gigantic cultural taboo. I mean, really moving through a cultural barrier to show her physical touch and that care in her life. He, he, he was willing to break a cultural barrier in order to show compassionate action. I hope you see the connection I'm making. We need to do the same. Now, quickly let me say, we have some cultural boundaries in place for people's comfort and safety. Do not go around touching old people's backs. 
Um, in fact, I thought about that this week. I made a slide. Don't be a weirdo. Don't be a creep. Okay? That is not God's will. Instead, ask. Can I pray for you? Can I help you? Why? In that moment at Target, I'm 100 feet away from this woman. That barrier, I must overcome that invisible barrier. Why didn't I run to her? Why am I above running when someone is in need? Because I have these societal, well, I don't run places. It's not what you do in public. When we're Jesus followers, you run to people in need. Um, how, what does that look like in your life? What does it look like to cross a barrier you thought was a barrier? It's not. It's holding you back. You need to be compassionate. Remember, I told you that Jesus in the story actually interacts with two different people. The first was this woman. Now we're going to turn, and he's going to teach us the same two lessons again with a very different character. He was one, now first dealing with a gentle, kind soul of a woman who was suffering. Now he's going to switch to like a grumpy jerk uh, that he's interacting with. And what he's going to show us is it could have been its own message, but we're going to lump it in here. Here's what he's going to teach us about relational adaptability. This is a skill that we need to learn. Really, that means that people are individuals. We cannot, this is not really when it comes to influence about how can I generally show my influence to others? It's how can my influence impact and be received best by each individual person? That's gonna take some adaptability because no one is the same. Hey, by the way, I I do wanna mention this. There's a similar concept in our culture called code switching. Code switching refers specifically to relational adaptability that is society has forced onto a certain people group. That there are some people in minority groups that are required in some ways to, if they want to be taken seriously or with respect, they need to put aside their own culture, put aside who they really are, and speak differently, act differently to appease the majority in power. It is a fascinating challenging topic that if you are a person that has experienced the burden of code switching, uh, I, I want to encourage those of you who haven't to reach out in a vulnerable conversation to a friend or a family member that may have had to bear this weight to better understand that their experience with this, that they are not able to operate and must have this skill to be to, to succeed in, the, in their jobs, in their world. Um, and it's, I, I want you to know, we're not actually talking about code switching today. It's a fascinating topic, an important one, but the difference of what I'm talking about when it comes to just relational adaptability is that this is something we get to choose. It's not something we're forced into, though that's an interesting topic with code switching. It's what can we on purpose do to be best for those who we're influencing, not for our sake, but for others' sake. Let me show you how Jesus relationally adapts to this other character in the story. It's the leader of the synagogue. The leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant. He was angry that Jesus had healed the woman on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. This guy was happy enough for Jesus to teach 
in his synagogue, not happy for Jesus to live out his teaching on the Sabbath day. And it came down to that question of working on the Sabbath. What he's referring to is the ancient Jewish law in the Ten Commandments where God establishes a holy day that he calls the Sabbath. Here's from the Ten Commandments. Some of you might recognize this. God says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week to do your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. It goes on. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the seas, everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. And that's why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. He is challenging the Jewish people, his people at that time, to wrestle with, let's go back one slide to find that word, with this word, work, that on this Sabbath day, mimic God in doing no work. The question, of course, because this was thousands of years before Jesus, was, well, what counts? What counts as work? They were like, well, does harvesting your fields count as work? Yes, yes, they all agreed, yes. Nobody harvests your fields on, on, this was Saturday, their Sabbath. But then they were like, well, what about our animals? They need water. Do we, do we bring them water? Is that work? And so for the next couple hundred years after that, they tried to figure it out. They came up with, yeah, you know what? If you're, if you're carrying water for your animals, we don't want to sin. So maybe don't go any farther than a mile. And then that progressed to like, hey, you know what? Just to be extra careful, let's only travel a half a mile. So plan ahead so you only carry water. Actually, How about 50 steps? Don't take any more than 50 steps and then we'll be obeying God. The the problem was, over these hundreds and hundreds of years, it makes sense that the Jewish people were like, what's God's law? Is God's law keeping the Sabbath holy or is it this 50 steps thing? It was very confusing. Really, what they were wrestling with was legalism. Was how do we take something good and make it so difficult and challenging for people that no one is obeying it? That everyone has a wrestle with like guilt and problematic living. Hey, we do that. It's not just ancient Jews that do that. How are you doing at church attendance? Sometimes we fall into that trap of I will say flat out, you should be at church every week. But I don't mean that in a legalistic way. If you're on vacation, if you have something that you need to do, if you get sick, if you, if, uh, I get it. We're all, we're, none of us are perfect attendance people. I don't want you to bring that to bring you shame. I just think church is a great place where we can be together, worship God, and grow. But we still wrestle with that. Some people, do you have a grandma who's like, you didn't go to church? Some of us have that grandma in our lives. Um, Jesus, I hope you'll be happy to hear, had no tolerance for legalism in his life. He was always annoyed by legalism. In fact, look how he responds to the legalism brought up by this church leader. He says, the Lord replied, you hypocrites. This is great truth telling. This is great candor that he's showing. And then he goes on to explain why hypocrisy is present here. Here's what he says. He says, each of you already works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she should be released even on the Sabbath? What he's saying is, yes, honor God. Don't do your ordinary work, but do good Don't stop doing good and call honoring to God. Instead, we have to care for people every day. Every day we need to. Now, let's let's look back. Remember, here's the two items that we're trying to learn today. We need to let God direct us into important truth-telling. Jesus certainly did that with you hypocrites. He explained his position. So he did that part. What about the second part? Remember, he he was compassionate to the woman by being gentle and kind. Did he just forget this step this time? The answer is no. 
when he gives that theological explanation, what he's doing is relationally adapting to this rabbi. Rabbis at the time, it's even part of Jewish tradition today, they don't just read the Bible and sit down and say, did everybody get it? They debate, they argue, they dissect, they have long conversations about the meaning behind things. When Jesus, it looks to us like he's yelling at this guy, he is engaging in a theological debate, which is exactly the language that compassionately this guy needs to hear. It's incredible. In fact, in the next verse, the guy is stunned and takes a step back to say, yeah, I, I, I'm shamed by that. I shouldn't have spoken up like that. Um, that relational adaptability of how different the truth-telling, how different the compassion looked is vital for us to see that range because people are different. Even here at church, so let me walk you through this here at the end. Even at our church, we have different, praise the Lord, we have many different generations. The way that our senior citizens at Journey show love, receive love, care for one another, care for people outside the generation is very different than how our church needs to show love to our crazy junior hires that we have here on Sunday and Tuesday nights. Um, we shove pizza in their face and they feel loved and it's great. Um, senior citizens, they don't like me shoving pizza in their, in their faces. Um, there, there is a dip, I ha- we have to, if you don't have diversity in your own family, your life, you don't know how to practice this relational adaptability, our church has different generations. Here's another one. We must figure this one out. Socioeconomic differences. Do you understand the range that we have here in the South Bay? It's absolutely incredible. You may be sitting next to someone who makes a tenth of your salary. And you may be sitting next to someone who makes 20 times your salary. It's an incredible gathering that we have of people. In fact, just this past month, month and a half, I had a conversation with a a, a young adult who had a roommate and she's struggling to split a $1,200 rent to the fact that she's going to move back with her parents and she was feeling bad that she was going to let her roommate down because she couldn't come up with the 600 bucks with her job. Then, that same month, I had a conversation with someone who's on their third month of struggling with a $10,000 a month mortgage. Now, those people, I can tell you, the conversation was exactly the same. It was a conversation about value and what it means to use our resources with integrity. It was fascinating where my heart wanted to go in compassion and judgment. But that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to saying, hey, how do we relationally adapt to each other so we're moving closer to God? I don't care if you have a zillion, million, billion dollars. We've got nothing. How do we move closer to God? Here's a few other categories we can relationally adapt to, different faith experiences we have here at church, different relationship status, single people, married people, divorced people, prior hurts, all kinds of prior hurts are out there, different cultures. I'm so glad we have different cultures here. And then here, power differentials. Some of you are literally CEOs. You have power. Some of you have nothing. And yet we're saying, hey, we can all have influence. We need to relationally adapt in conversation of what that means. Taking all that into account, we can be like Jesus. We can, we can really study one another and then study ourselves of how we can do this balance. Here's the action step today as we close. Just one, because it's difficult. Honestly, with God's help, identify whether you need more work on candor or compassion. Are you a person that needs to start using your God-given voice to bring influence? Your voice matters, and you can be a truth teller where you had avoided that, or are you a jerk, (laughs) and you need to do a little less truth telling, a little more bringing in compassion so people know you care for them? 
Which one? I want you to practice that. Use your safest relationships to practice growing in that one this week. Maybe that's talking to your parent, maybe a friend, uh, a roommate, where you can say to them, here's what I'm working on. I need to speak up more. Or here's what I'm working on. I need to be a softer soul. Where is it for you? Hey, we're going to finish today. We're going to sing one more song together before we leave. And we're going to sing a song we've sung many times before, so maybe you'll be familiar with it, where it's called Here I Stand. Uh, with that, there's that line of, uh, I'm standing with my arms wide open, Lord. It's, it's a posture that we're describing of vulnerability. Because really, this lesson of candor and compassion begins with our interaction with God. Are we truly expressing who we actually are and letting God bring his compassion and intersect with us? Are there things that we're keeping from him? We don't want to talk to God about that sin, that struggle, uh, that problem in our lives. God saying, hey, open your arms. Open the arms that come in your heart. Open yourself to me and let me experience all of that. Let me bring my healing, my spirit to that. So that's my prayer as we sing this last song, that we would practice that connection with God so he would lead us to positive influence in our lives. Hey, here at Manhattan Beach and also at Torrance, will you stand while I pray and that will take us directly into singing this last song. All right, pray with me. Dear God, we, we need to take a step closer to you. We need to take a step closer to living and leading and looking like you. Um, Lord God, for some of us, that means you need to inspire us with bravery, with, with this truth-telling goal of being able to really share the wisdom that you've put in our hearts. And Lord God, some of us need to learn to round those edges and, and find a way to show compassion so that we're not just judges, we're not just critics, but we're people who really show care. Lord God, in, in both of those things, will you allow us to act this week? Will you give us strength and boldness to break through those barriers, to bring help to people in need? Point those situations out, Lord God. We want to be guided by you. And so we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.